1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Speaking of the Surrey police saga, the never-ending story, the non-decision on this by the B.C. government now, this seems like a bigger mess than ever before, we've been talking about other municipalities on the show this week who are now putting their hand up saying, hang on a second here. You are now talking about putting $150 million on the table for Surrey so they can do their police transition. What about all these other municipalities that need money for policing and other priorities? Let's discuss now with my guest, Daniel Fontaine, City Councillor, New Westminster very pleased to welcome him back. Councillor, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, first of all, Daniel, what do you think of this whole saga in, in Surrey, the never-ending story here? What are your thoughts on it?
0: Well, it certainly is a, uh, has been described as a saga. I mean, we have a, a made-in-Surrey problem that now has resulted in a maiden $150 million bailout. And I can tell you as uh, an elected official in a city with our own municipal police force that has Many demands put on it. I must say, I was quite perplexed by the um, the decision, and I'll put that in air quotes on Friday uh, by the Solicitor General to not only recommend SPS, um, and, but also to throw uh, 150 million dollars on the table, as you indicated. And I actually think yeah. that figure might that figure might be low, Mike. That is a negotiating opening um salvo i mean i'm assuming that the city of surrey is going to ask for more than 150 million dollars meanwhile municipal police forces in delta port moody uh, new westminster other cities are all asking themselves i'm sure uh where's the funding for us who are also facing incredible policing challenges in our communities
1: Okay, well, the city of Surrey has said, look, I we understand the province wants us to switch to this new municipal police force, get rid of the RCMP, but it's going to cost a lot of money, an extra 30 million bucks a year. Minimum, maybe. Maybe it's more than that, like you said. And the province has said, okay, don't worry, we'll help you pay for it. We'll put this pile of money on the table. Now... I, you know, I've talked to other city councillors and mayors like yourself this week who are saying, "Wait a sec, what about me? Well, me too here. We'd like some more money too. But it's like in New West though, you guys are not transitioning to a new police force, right? You've got the new West Police Department. So well, what, said, why would you need yeah. why would you get money? You guys are not transitioning to a different police department Well as I,
0: as I said, Mike, this is a made in Surrey problem that should have been a made in Surrey solution, but we've got a made in Victoria bailout uh, to the tune of one hundred and fifty million dollars. What we've got, this is around equity and police funding. So we're looking at municipal police forces across the metro Vancouver. We just had, Mike, uh, somebody pull out a gun a couple of weeks ago in downtown New West and started shooting at, at, at people in, in, on downtown street. We're all facing these incredible policing challenges. And meanwhile, the province has committed a minimum of $150 million into Surrey policing wow. right across the river in New Westminster, Our police force is getting absolutely nothing. So I guess that's the when that decision was made on Friday, it opened up a Pandora's box, and it opened up a bigger, broader discussion around uh, investments in policing in Metro Vancouver. I appreciate that the city of Surrey wishes to move uh, uh, to to SPS or not. That's up to them to make that decision, and it's up to the province to decide whether or not they want to commit $150 million. But as an elected official across the river, it's up to me to also ask the province, where is the funding for our police force? And so far, there's been nothing.
1: Speaking to New West counselor Daniel Fontaine. Okay, let me play a clip here for you from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth because he has heard you. He's heard these complaints from other municipal leaders in the region saying, hey, "Wait a second, how, well, how about some money for us here too?" And here's what he, here's what he has to say. Here, listen to this. He says, "Look, we just gave you guys a pile of money here. Have a listen." Here's Mike Farnworth.
0: We have just given uh, municipalities. Um, a billion dollars this year in direct grants that they get to determine where that money goes in terms of infrastructure in their communities. Uh, And local governments were not expecting that, Uh, it's a significant cash infusion into local governments.
1: Okay, Daniel, how much did New Westminster get out of that $1 billion fund? Well, before I respond to that, I think it's important (laughs) to
0: clarify what the minister said. He said the money was for infrastructure. It's not for police operations. It's not for city operations or day to day activities. It's for infrastructure. We have a massive infrastructure deficit in our city. We haven't built a new arena in the city of New Westminster since 1974. What the province did give us, along with all the other municipalities, is a share of $1 billion, and that was approximately $16 million for the city of New Westminster. But I will note with great interest that the city of Surrey received $90 million from that same pot of fund, in addition to the planned $150 million that they're now going to receive for their police force. So it's apples and oranges. It's it's actually conflating two issues to bring this issue of the of the billion dollars, completely separate, and it was for infrastructure, not for operations.
1: Yeah, do you think, therefore, that when Farnworth keeps bringing this point up, like, what are you guys whining about here? We just gave you a billion dollars here to municipalities. Is that, what, is that dirty pool? Like, is he trying to muddy the waters here when he does that? How do you, how do you characterize that argument?
0: Well, it's like I said, it's apples and oranges. And when I hear yeah. the minister, I, uh, what, my response to the minister is thank you for the funding <laughs> that you provided to the city for uh, dealing with a, a small portion of our infrastructure deficit. But there was no funding in there for police. And as my understanding, there's no funding for city operations either. Yeah. The premier was very clear that that funding was to, to build pools, rinks, uh, you know, other community infrastructure projects. So to say that somehow... Um, you know, the province has already given to police operations in places like the city of Northminster is simply not factual.
1: Okay. A lot of people looking at this situation in Surrey and saying, well, Surrey is getting a special deal here from the province. Let's play another clip here from the Solicitor General. Get your thoughts. So here's Mike Farnworth responding to that argument. If he's uh, playing, if Surrey's getting special treatment here, let's listen
0: the province is not playing favorites the province is dealing with a situation in surrey which impacts not just surrey but all uh, communities across the province particularly those that are policed by the rcmp okay so he's
1: saying they're not playing favorites by offering surrey this money to get out of this policing jam that Surrey going with the continuing to go with the rcmp which the province doesn't want them to do impacts other communities they're Protect, especially if cities have RCMP detachments that maybe want to move to Surrey, your thoughts?
0: Well, I could I could argue, uh, Mike. You know, we we just had a report that came out within the last I think uh, last week. This the New West Police Department has lost fifteen one five sworn police officers. They've been recruited away by the Surrey Police Force that's the start it's not it's not over we're likely going to lose more police yet the funding uh, has all gone into surrey and so th- by adding additional funding into surrey that's likely going to exacerbate the problem with municipal police forces not only in new west but in delta in port moody and abbotsford and other communities that are likely going to lose police yet there's no money on the table for us to be able to recruit and to retain our own police within our own communities so to say that this is not um, this is a unique situation in Surrey, well, it's suddenly going to become very unique for a lot of other municipal police forces who are also losing police to the SPS. So this is complicated, but it got a lot more complicated on Friday when the $150 million was put on the table without any additional funding for other municipal police forces.
1: Councillor, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. let's talk about the situation in vancouver schools now with the vancouver police liaison program now you may remember the previous school board canceled that program police officers were removed from vancouver schools the new school board has decided to bring the police officers back this fall so the school liaison program for the vancouver police department will start up again this fall and there are some changes to the program that we'll tell you about. Now have a listen to Tanya Visintin here from a VPD media officer. Now here she is commenting on the original removal of police liaison officers from schools and describes a, a disappointment, how disappointed the VPD were about that. Let's listen.
2: SLOs have been in our Vancouver schools for decades not only did they um or were responsible for uh, the safety of the students and responding to incidents that would occur they were also involved in programs running clubs they were coaches on sports teams they led safety initiatives so to hear this it's very uh disappointing
1: okay so now the program though is coming back so it will be back in the fall but with changes. So, the uniforms the officers will wear will be less formal. There will be cultural awareness training for the officers involved in the school liaison program. And officers will continue to carry sidearms, but they will be smaller, less exposed firearms. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Patty Backus, former chair of the Vancouver School Board. Patty, thanks for coming on.
3: Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Yeah, you bet. So, Patty, we have discussed this issue before, and you've been quite, quite clear in your position on it. You don't think that the police officers should be coming back to Vancouver schools, correct?
3: No, I, I listened to the meetings um, where the previous board uh, heard from a wide range of uh, students, former students, uh, parents, community members, and heard what they had to say. Uh, in many cases, these were either black students, indigenous students, or indigenous parents. Um, with concerns that they had about uh, having police in schools about how some students would feel uh, particularly quite uncomfortable and some parents quite concerned as well um, you know as a as a for me myself my own history i, I had a fairly positive view of the police but i as a former trustee it was always important to me to listen to the other voices who came from a different background than i did and what their experience was and to try to really understand that and particularly with uh, students from demographic groups that may not have always succeeded in school at the same level as their as other students in in their age group so that was really powerful to me to hear the stories and the reasons behind um, why people were concerned about having police in schools. Uh, and, you know, Vancouver is far from the only school district that has made the decision to remove police from schools. This is happening all over North America and across Canada. And now we have a board that came in and very hastily uh, reversed that decision and now seems to have made some tweaks to the program. I don't think uh, putting police in polo shirts or having smaller guns really addresses the problems uh, that are behind the initial decision to remove them. from Okay.
1: Schools. Okay. Well, let's discuss in detail a little bit more some of the changes that you just touched on there, Patty. So officers now will wear less formal uniforms, polo style mm. shirts, as you mentioned, or like a, a golf, I guess, a golf style shirt. Hiking pants will be part of the uniform. So they won't be in full police uniforms. They will still carry sidearms, but smaller sidearms. They will be driving unmarked vehicles, so you would not have like a, a police cruiser outside of uh, parked outside of a school. Why? Why does that not make it more acceptable to you?
3: Well, I think it acknowledges that having police in schools is problematic for many students and triggering, and and a, and a cause for anxiety. So they're trying to t- tone that down by sort of. Superficial changes without addressing the issues that we have seen with the Vancouver Police and policing in general in Canada, um, of disproportionate uh, brutalization of Indigenous people, uh, killings by police. I mean, my God, we have just all listened to the findings of the coroner's inquest into the killing of Miles Gray by Vancouver police officers. I think there's valid reasons why people are concerned about having police in schools with high school students. Um, and, and what that may have, that impact they may have on the students now, and potentially down the road if they become criminalized as students.
1: Okay. Well, I've talked to students here on the show. Patty, who you feel the same way as you? I mean, I've talked to some students who feel that it was inappropriate. They felt uncomfortable with police officers in schools. But I've also talked to a lot of parents and kids who supported the program. Let me let me play one of them. Uh, play. For, play a clip here for you from from one of them here so this is ali chowdhury and ali is a former high school student in vancouver and he's was a big supporter of this program he felt it made a big difference in his life and let's have a listen i'll get your thoughts ali chowdhury speaking to me on an earlier show here
4: Safety is just one small part of the school liaison officer program that I feel people um, still don't understand. You know, it was such a good opportunity to be uh, involved in programs that teachers and counselors didn't have any ideas about, such as the VPD Student Challenge or the Cadets programs. And having the SLO introduce us to these programs and being a familiar face in these programs made it that much more comfortable to go.
1: Okay, so as he touched on there, there were other programs that these officers were involved with and teaching, you know, coaching sports teams in the schools. Patty, your thoughts.
3: Well, there's no reason why coaching in schools can't be done by non police officers. We don't require people who bring a gun to work to teach kids to play basketball or play games with them or build relationships. We have a school system that uh, we have seen pretty small increases in the school district operating budgets in comparison to a police budget that's massively increased. Even just with this announcement of the changes, they haven't even really figured out where they'll find the staffing. They're allocating, I think, about 18 full-time positions from the VPD. Well, I just listened to the VSB budget meeting last night, and they're scraping. Um, So... You know, I would love to see this this funding that goes toward this program transferred to the Vancouver School Board, where they could hire youth and family workers and counselors and other adults who could be having those relationships with kids. It's a difference in the budgets of the two organizations. The VSB is so tightly staffed; um, they have lost right. so many positions that used to support kids, and the VPD is filling some of those gaps. Well, let's—we don't need police officers to be doing those roles. We could be hiring other workers who are not. Uh, part of the law enforcement uh, background what, to, to work with
1: those students. What about the many documented cases here, and we've talked about this on the show before, and I've talked to kids who have told some really powerful and moving stories about their interactions with these police officers in schools and how it it helped them. So we've heard from kids, for example, who may have been experiencing abuse in their homes and they really didn't know who to turn to they went and talked to one of these school liaison police officers and they got some help so i don't think you can dispute that these police officers have helped kids a lot and a lot of times many vulnerable kids who are in trouble your thoughts
3: yeah well as i've written before there's been a lot of positives about the program prior to this review that was done in 2021 and 2020 I probably would have said, yeah, I think it's great. I I think there's a lot of tremendous police officers. I've met many. I met many SLOs who, uh, you know, were doing great work. However, you know, it's, again, not my experience or other white people of a certain age's experience that is particularly relevant, I believe, in this case. For me, it was listening to others who had that different experience, who came forward. When they came from a background where uh, families who would have family members taken to residential schools by police, uh, who'd had family, uh, children apprehended by police, uh, families who'd had relatives who had been beaten by police, families who'd had someone taken on a starlight tour in the prairies by police, that their own personal history made uh, dealing with police Traumatic and possibly dangerous. You know, I think we have to all be aware. This is really a public relations program for police to create that image and impression on kids. I'm not convinced, with all I'm hearing right now about what's happening with the BPD, that that's a particularly safe message. I'm not sure if police are safe for all students to be uh, engaging with, given what we're hearing. Uh, what happens. wouldn't it wouldn't not only it be the brutal be beating re- of Miles Gray, but the cover up uh. and the, the the obstruction of Justice. They're not keeping notes. The systemic problems that were at play there. It wasn't one bad apple. I mean, this is a police force with some systemic problems that we can't ignore.
1: And isn't it obvious, sure though? Isn't it, for students. isn't it obvious, though, Patty, that most students in the system supported this program? I mean, there was some polling done by that by the school board that showed clearly a majority of kids actually supported the program and wanted to retain it and the previous school board got rid of the program shut it down anyway over the objections of those kids so i take your point and i've, I've spoken to kids on the show who feel the same way you do that they want they didn't feel it was appropriate to have police officers in the school and they wanted the program to shut down i get it but i would say to you that most kids wanted the program to remain
3: well, I would say that's not an equivalency of experience. So I would have said back when we reviewed our, our sexual orientation gender identity policy, the majority of students felt fine using the washroom at school because it uh, fit with their gender identity. There was a small percentage who really didn't, and they were feeling marginalized and at risk, and the statistics bore that out, as they do for Indigenous students, as they do for students of colour. So we had to pay particular attention It's the role of a school trustee is to make sure every single student feels safe and supported right. at school. To say, well, I like the program. It's kind of fun. I like going out and playing basketball. It's not the same as saying, my family has been traumatized by our interactions with police. Um, okay. I'm afraid for my children to be around police at school. When I come to pick up my child in elementary school, and I heard this said at meetings, and I see a police car outside the school, I become anxious because of yeah. my history with, with policing. So that's what you have to pay. You don't just compare it equally across the board. Someone thinks, oh, it's fine, because it doesn't really affect them that deeply personally.
1: Patty, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it.
3: My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Um
1: All right, let's talk about the new rules and restrictions in B.C. condos and strata buildings, particularly around age restrictions. Now, you may recall that the B.C. government had taken steps here to remove a lot of these age restrictions in condo buildings, with one very prominent exception. So you're still allowed to have a 55-plus age-restricted building for a strata or a condo building. 55-plus. That is still allowed. Now, that is something that advocates for senior citizens in British Columbia had pressured the government on, and the government said, okay, we will allow 55-plus age restriction buildings in B.C. A lot of condo buildings have done this. They've gone to a 55-plus age restriction. The government now bringing in some new rules about this, about people who may be... Maybe they're getting married. Maybe they're having kids. Maybe they would like their children to come live with them. How is that going to work? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Wendy Wall, from the Vancouver Island Strata Owners Association. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Wendy, thanks a lot for coming on today.
5: Good morning. Thanks for having us, Mike.
1: Yeah, you bet. Thank you. So this is an issue that I know you've been following very closely when it comes to 55-plus age restriction. Have a lot of buildings... Uh, converted to that, brought in that age restriction?
5: I think there might be some confusion about this because we've had age restriction bylaws allowing 55-plus for decades. So there's been a lot of um, public confusion thinking that this was something new that came in in November, and it's not. Um, all it did is, as you said, took away the younger. So you can't have 19 plus or 40 plus anymore, but you can still have 55 plus. Right. So over the years, it, it, it's not an unusual thing for a building to have passed an age restriction bylaw. Yeah. I think it's just that it's in the media right now. It's it's a hot topic, so we're we're talking about it. Whereas before, it was just day to day. You know, it, it wasn't news, um, but now right. it's news. <laughs> um, so I. Uh, Yes, there were some buildings that changed over to 55-plus uh, or 60-plus um, since November, but a lot of that was based on confusion about rentals. People were linking the two, conflating the two issues, and they're actually very separate things. The The ban on rentals, uh, the ban on rental age restrictions, I should say, was one thing that was a change in, in the law in November. The other right. thing was just removing these younger Age restrictions. So you know now that we have uh, that we're talking again about the 55 plus. You're right. Now, uh, as of yesterday, we have some new regulations. It's called the Strata Property Regulation, and there's a brand new one that adds more exemptions uh, in different situations, like you said.
1: Right. So there's exemptions for children. There are exemptions for spouses. There are exemptions if you want. Maybe a child to come live with you as a, as a caregiver in your, in your strata unit. So let's listen to the housing minister here, Wendy, and then I'll get your thoughts. So here is BC housing minister Ravi Kalon talking about some of the changes, the exemptions they're bringing in in 55 plus buildings. Here's the housing minister. Let's listen
0: kids is an exciting
4: time and and the last thing you need is uh the stress of being worried about whether your place is still yours after you have a kid and this doesn't happen often as you've highlighted it Mm -hmm. it happens rarely but when it does happen it has real impacts on those
1: families okay so he's talking there about people would be grandfathered in we've there have been some cases of people living in these buildings now they have converted to a 55 plus age restriction uh, but their, their family's growing. They're going to have a baby, and those children will be allowed to stay in the building, correct? Is that your understanding of it, Wendy?
5: That is correct. So yeah. there was already an exemption and has been for decades that if the age restriction bylaw came in, anyone of any age who was already living there could stay. But you're right. It w- you didn't allow for future children or future younger spouses, and now it does. Right. So it does expand... Um, you know, this the sort of change in family status, it expands it to allow more situations. So if you're also, um, per, you're, you're out there looking at properties to purchase or your tenants who are looking for a new uh, a new place to rent, same thing. Um, there is, yeah. under certain situations, an exemption for those people to have a younger spouse or right. a younger child. And there is some confusion. Um, I Thank you so much for using the word caregiver. It's a really important thing because because the regulation says the child does not have to be your blood relative. Child, it doesn't say it has to be adopted. It, it says exactly what you said is that it's if um, if the if the child is one of the is, if the person is a caregiver of the child. So it's a really important distinction. And the word dependent is being in the last 24 hours has been used a lot. That is not the word to use. Caregiver
1: is the word Caregiver, okay. Let's listen to the housing minister on this precise point here, Wendy. So, yeah, part of the exemptions that have been brought in by the government, let's say you're living in a 55-plus building, you're a senior citizen, you would like to have uh, so, uh maybe a, a child or someone else move in with you as a caregiver. This is obviously a possible situation scenario. That will be allowed here under these exemptions. Let's listen to the housing minister here. Here is Ravi Kalan.
4: If you have a young person, whether it's, you know, your 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 child
0: or your children or your grandson and your or granddaughter, they can move in with you as a caregiver and you don't need to have special permission. Because we've heard from seniors also
4: that, hey, the building's 55 plus, which is great. I'm getting older. I need somebody to help me. Uh, and uh, the rules don't allow it.
1: Okay, so under the previous rules, as he described it there, I guess you would not have been allowed to have a live-in caregiver underage, correct? Now you well, will be, right?
5: No, in November, um, in November, the language already accommodated a true caregiver. So if you okay. needed a live-in person to help you, whether you are of a certain age or, re- or of a certain disability, um, you could have a live-in caretaker of any age take care of you um again this new regulation yesterday just expands on that so uh let's say the person was taking care of you but they weren't considered medically um a, a caregiver you know yeah. <laughs> you know but let's say it's just a family member who's there helping the person but they're not <clears throat> their formal um occupation is not full-time living there as a caregiver so now it does expand that um so for populations who need that help. And as, again, I say not just seniors who need help, but um, disabilities, or for many reasons, why someone might need help and support in that household. Right. It does expand to uh, to allow many more situations for that.
1: What do you think of these exemptions? Do you think these are, are reasonable and make sense to you? I mean, what are you hearing from, from your owners who are Strata owners?
5: I'm hearing two very strong opposite opinions. Mm. Yes, for new purchasers or for younger people who are planning families, they're thrilled. They're thrilled that there are now more opportunities in the future that mean they can stay where they are. However, for the people who have um, established seniors-oriented communities, whether those buildings have been 55-plus from day one or whether for whatever reason that community decided to become seniors-oriented over the years, like I said, decades of this, they could have changed over 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. They made a democratic decision to do that. For whatever reason, the value of their community wanted that lifestyle. And here I say, even grandparents, you know, they love their grandkids. They didn't want them living there. <laughs> so it's 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 a bit of a difficult thing um, for these owners who legally, passed bylaws through a a very high bar, a three-quarter vote, that passed bylaws that put in age restrictions, it's very difficult for them now to see yet another thing come in where the government is, in their view, interfering with their private property rights. So we've got very different opinions here, and it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time for this, uh, as the minister said, a small number of situations where people are in these communities and yet at a life stage where they're planning families or um marrying or having a a marriage-like relationship with with someone who doesn't meet the age uh it's going to take a while for the makeup of that community to shift a little bit to have a number of younger people in the complex and who knows the the attitudes of the other residents might slowly change to be more accepting of a a wider range of residents. And maybe that age restriction bylaw 10 years from now isn't going to be that important to them. But it is going to take time.
1: Yeah, we're watching it closely for sure. Hey, Wendy, one more question for you. The the rental restrictions that were brought in by the government earlier, how has that worked out? Because the government has said, look, we want to... free up more of these units to be rented out. We need rental units in the, in the province. So we are going to phase out these rental bans in stratas. All strata units, all condos would be available to rent out if the owner wants to rent them out. How is that working out so far?
5: Well, I'll say what I said in November. There's not actually that many units that are for rent that, that yep. were empty at the time. Yep. So, you know, we haven't, you know, I'm still, I'm still getting um, emails and messages from people saying, we don't understand this change. We don't have a single empty unit. We didn't then. We don't now. Uh, you know, why why did this happen? So I, I think there's been an overestimation of the number of units that were empty, that were available to rent, that couldn't rent. Uh, and again, I think it's going to take time. And, and there's no statistics yet that I'm aware of. I yep. imagine it'll take a couple of years for, the, for those statistics, if any, to okay. come to light. But what we're seeing right now is, again, the confusion. Where were these empty units that yeah. um, supposedly, you know, have opened up with the change in legislation? And um, we're still seeing um, a lot of education needed. Um, quite a few stratas who still didn't realize <laughs> that, those, um, that the law changed. Mm. And, you know, we're constantly repeating, no, you have to allow these owners to rent. Uh, you yeah. can't restrict them anymore.
1: Wendy, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it.
5: Have a great day, Mike.
1: All right, let's talk about the patchwork of policing we have now in Metro Vancouver. Do you know there are 22 policing agencies in the Lower Mainland? That's if you include the transit police. 22. So you think about that now. You've got all the municipal police departments, Vancouver Police Department. And then you have the various RCMP detachments as well, notably the Surrey RCMP and the transition there and the battle going on there. Think about this now. Should we have just one amalgamated police force for the whole region? Other metropolitan areas of Canada have gone through process like that. Many people have argued in the past that the situation we have now with the patchwork of different departments and detachments is just not efficient. And we should have an amalgamated police force for the region. I got Dylan Kruger standing by to talk about this now. First, let's have a listen here to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. He was on the show yesterday, and he made a pitch for this, regional policing. Have a listen to what he had to say.
0: I am increasingly of the view that we should have regional policing in Metro Vancouver. Um, A lot of mayors will say, well, no, I don't want that. I I, I don't want to... You know, lose local control. Uh, and after five years of being mayor, I can tell you the idea of local control policing is a fallacy.
1: All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dylan Kruger, city councilor in Delta. And of course, they have the Delta Police Department there. Dylan, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, my pleasure. Good morning. All right, good morning to you. Thanks for doing it. What do you think of this idea, a regional police force in Metro?
4: Well, first of all, let me just say I've got an incredible amount of respect for uh, Mayor Brad West. I think he's one of the best uh, mayors in our region, and he's doing a terrific job. Uh, I do happen to disagree with him on this issue, though. We've had Delta Police, our own police department in the city of Delta, for 130 years. And that's a community-first policing model that's worked very well for us. We operate on a no-call, to small basis, and we're able to do that because we have a policing model that's resourced properly to the city and Delta Council, and that is not a model... Uh, that I think could be easily replicated a, a, at a regional policing level.
1: Right, and when I take a look at the Delta Police Department website, that's their motto. It, it's right there on the website: "No call is too small." What What does that mean in in actual reality? Like their op, their daily operations, "No call is too small." What does that mean? So that means in practical terms. So
4: I'm our our city's representative on ecom. Ecom is. When you call into 911 in Metro Vancouver, you come into one place, one building uh, in Vancouver where those calls go into. So I was able to do a tour of the Econ facility recently and chat with some of the dispatchers. There's actually different protocols in different cities. In in Delta, what it means to be no call too small is that if you call Delta police, you are going to get through to Delta police regardless of the issue. If you call Vancouver, depending on the issue, they don't have the resources. They're focused on very serious issues on the downtown east side and, and, and other problems that are going on. So there are some issues where they'll say, look, I'm sorry, you, you can't bother us with this. We don't have the resources. We will answer any call in Delta. And I think that's a service that our residents uh, really respect. And I think it's developed a, a lot of trust in our policing and a feeling of, of general community safety, which which is hard to replace. It's hard to replicate that.
1: Yeah. yeah, I'm taking a look at the Delta Police Department website right now and their and their news releases. And they've got one here where they said, here's an example of our no call to small policing uh, Resident in Delta called police when their dog got out of their backyard. So their dog escaped from the backyard and police were able to chase down this dog. So that's an example of no call too small. Now, you know, I, I suppose if you have lost your dog and the police get your dog back, you're, obviously you're going to be very happy about that. But what would you say to other, other people, counselor in other communities who can't even get the police on the phone if they've had a, a break-in in their home. Like, how is this How is this an efficient use of police resources in our province, in this region of the province, when you've got one police department chasing down lost dogs?
4: Look, you know, it's, it's hard for me to speak to experiences in other communities, but I can speak to the experience in our community. I think one of the great fears we would have in Delta with a regional policing model is policing will naturally go to the hotspots and communities like Delta and other communities in Metro Vancouver that have their own independent police forces will see their uh, services eroded. And, you know, the, the expression we've often used in our council that Delta would get the crumps policing goes to the hotspots in Surrey and Vancouver uh, and some of these other regional issues that uh, others have spoken about and, and the local community uh, policing and, and sense of security does fail. And there is a, there is something to say, I think a very important value, in creating safe, vibrant, and inclusive communities where there's a strong feeling of trust. Uh, Now, that's not to say that we don't work collaboratively. Like We have many integrated policing teams across the region that have some of the benefits of regional policing without the drawbacks. Delta Police works closely with the Integrated Gang Unit, for example, or IHIT, Integrated Homicide Investment Team. So there's information and resource sharing that goes into tackling those serious issues like guns and gangs, but we're still able to retain that local-level control uh, to ensure that sense of community policing.
1: Do you think that, w- would you argue that with the Delta Police Department in your community, that you do have local control, as you described it, local accountability, that that isn't, is a reality? Like we heard in that clip from Brad West, we played there, that he said in his experience as mayor that the idea of this sort of local control of the police is kind of a, a fallacy. But would you say yeah. that is the reality in Delta?
4: That hasn't been my experience. I mean, really local control is we're talking about financing. I mean, politicians should not be and are never in charge of the day-to-day operations of police services, whether they're independent police services or RCMP or regional police services. But locally, we go through a budget every year where we're able to allocate uh, our policing resources. We have our mayor as the chair of the police board. We have local representatives on the police board that are appointed by our council. Uh, And it is closer. we're not going to Ottawa hat in hand looking for... Uh, additional uh, resources or or boots on the ground. We're able to deal with that uh, issue locally. Uh, The other thing that I'd say that we get is, again, we've got uh, just a level of of community involvement. Uh, We've got our school liaison officers. We've got, in the communities at local events, district community police offices. We've got seniors programs, traffic safety units. We're we're, we're able to have that greater amount of, of flexibility in our city because of the model that we present.
1: Speaking to Delta City Councilor Dylan Kruger, and we're talking about the idea of a regional police force for all of Metro Vancouver. Of course, in Delta, they have the Delta Police Department, and a lot of people are very happy with that. Let me play another clip here for you from from Brad West. So, you know, I put this to him yesterday when I was speaking to him, the POCO mayor, that there are communities in Metro Vancouver very, very pleased with their police force, and I'm sure a lot of people in Delta probably feel that way. You clearly do. And I, I put it to him. What about these local councils? What about these local mayors who want to keep their local police force right where it is? And here's what he had to say. I'll get your thoughts. Brad West on yesterday's show.
0: We need to look at this from the perspective of what is the best model to keep people in this region safe? Not, you know, oh, what mayor are we going to piss off? Who cares?
1: Okay, he says, who cares if if one mayor gets upset? This should be a regional priority here, public safety. Councilor, your thoughts?
4: Well, I certainly agree with uh, with Mayor West. There, mayors and, and councilors uh, come and go, and I'm no exception uh, to that rule. But I think we have to ask ourselves: like, what is the problem that we're trying to solve uh, with regional policing? And with regional policing, you know, what we lose is that sense of community policing as we put our resources to the hot spots. That's just the reality. Uh, but if we're trying to tackle these bigger issues, bigger issues where we already have uh, integrated units out there. Uh, another issue that Mayor West brought up that I agree with him on is, is the port policing issue. You know, we have yeah. we, uh, the federal government just announced last week massive expansion of Roberts Bank Terminal Delta Port, one of the largest container port terminals in Canada already. And uh, the federal government removed the port police uh, service many years ago. Uh, there are very serious cross-jurisdictional international issues with regards to illegal contraband and, and uh, you know smuggling of illegal items we need port police back and i think you know having this uh, announcement of the expansion of ter- uh, terminal 2 is a good time to restart that conversation that's why i'd rather focus these discussions but with the regional policing yeah. uh, you, all you're you're really doing is, is losing that sense of of community safety that we do enjoy in many of the communities across metro vancouver
1: yeah and i think that if we ever did go down this road there have been attempts to do this in the past that really haven't got a lot of traction to bring in a regional police force amalgamation of these police forces and services that you would get local opposition to it. Is, is that your read of it? Like if, if this was a movement, a serious movement to try and bring in a regional police force in Metro, do you think the people of Delta would, would make it clear that they don't like it? They want to, <laughs> they want to keep it right the, the way it is right now.
4: Yeah. And again, it's, it's, it's not about, um, you know, ticking off an individual politician. I I think that, uh, these local police forces are incredibly popular. In Delta, like I said, 130 years, Delta Police, that is an institution that's been around wow. uh, for over a century. Uh, it takes decades to build up that level of trust in a community. And I think you'd be starting from scratch in a lot of areas when you have a new regional police force with new protocols coming into place in communities. Uh, and I, I, I don't think it's the silver bullet some think it would be. And as we know with some of the other various discussions we're having on policing these days, there are always very serious uh, transition costs when we're talking about uh, issues
1: like this. Councillor, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Mike, thanks. Anytime. All right, here we go. Now let's talk about this story that's gone viral around the world here now. There's a group of young women on a getaway to the Sunshine Coast staying in an Airbnb for a birthday party. They discover a hidden camera in a bathroom. Now I've got Kennedy Caldwell standing by. It is her viral TikTok video that that really kicked this story off and lit it on fire here Her handle on TikTok is Kennedy Allegedly. That's her username on TikTok, Kennedy Allegedly. Let's listen to a bit of her viral video here.
6: There were 15 girls staying in a house for my friend's 30th birthday. One of our friends was like, guys, I'm really paranoid. I feel like there's cameras in the house. And we were like, girl, you watch way too much TikTok. There are no cameras in this house. But she whipped out her flashlight and she went investigating. And she found one. In the bathroom, one of the outlets was faced directly to the shower.
1: All right, that's Kennedy Caldwell there. Kennedy allegedly on TikTok, a little bit of her video that's gone viral. Kennedy, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate you making time because I know there are reporters everywhere trying to speak to you, so I, I, I'm grateful to you for that. So, Kennedy, let's, let's, let's t- tell me the story here. What, what happened? When did this happen? And you, you tell me what happened.
6: This happened a few weeks ago, and my friend, it was her 30th birthday, so a bunch of us girls were going to the Sunshine Coast to celebrate, have a little girls weekend, and one of my friends had seen a video um, a couple of days before we left about how small hidden cameras can be these days and how you could fit them just about anywhere, like a shower head or an outlet. So there were a couple of weird things happening in the Airbnb, that made her want to check to see if there were cameras. So there was a broken outlet in the bathroom. So she's shown a uh, flashlight in there and she found the hidden camera.
1: Wow. Wow. So It was like her spidey sense was going off there. She, she thought something was wrong, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. And found- right. And she, and she was right. What did, and what did you and your friends think about this when she first said this, like you heard on your video there, you thought, well, come on now, maybe you're just being a little paranoid.
6: Yeah. Um, I mean, I was like, we're not in a horror movie. Like, (laughs) again, I didn't know they could make cameras that small. I was like, there's no way they could fit one in an outlet. Like, let's just go have fun. This was like the middle of the night. Like, let's not scare ourselves right now. But then as she showed us one by one what she was actually seeing in the outlet, we all became convinced and then started freaking out.
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay. So what went through? what, What did you guys think about this? How did you guys react to this when you discovered it?
6: Um, Again, we weren't really taking it seriously. We were just kind of giggling and laughing, like, oh, my gosh, we're in a movie. But then it kind of hit us, the gravity of the situation. Like, wait, is this really a camera? And if it is, how long has this camera been in this Airbnb? There could be children that were staying here the weekend before. Like, how long has this been going on? And we started to – because we had been there for a day or two before. And so we had been, like, showering and in the bathroom for a long time. So – like, what footage was out there of us? Was this being live streamed? Like, we started to get really scared. We locked up all the doors. We made makeshift weapons and hid them under our pillows. Like, the night took a bit of a dark turn, which was unfortunate since we were there celebrating a birthday.
1: Oh, that! what a shame this has happened to you and your friends, Kennedy. I I, I really feel for for you and your friends here that this has happened. Um, so I know you, you called the police, right?
6: Yep, we contacted the police, and they searched the house, and they found the cameras. Um, there were two cameras one in each bathroom pointing oh. towards the towers.
1: oh my god there were two cameras yeah oh, oh my goodness wow and what have they told you now like what is happening with this investigation
6: they are um <clears throat> they sent the cameras to the lab so we're just waiting to hear the next step there um it actually took them about a week or two to search the house so we were surprised that the cameras were still there when they searched so we're just waiting to hear back on what the next steps are
1: wow that's incredible speaking to kennedy colwell she's one of the young women who are on that vacation up on the sunshine coast in an airbnb found a camera in one of the bathrooms Sort of two cameras there kennedy allegedly that's her handle on on tiktok uh, where she uh that sort of kicked this whole story off, didn't it, Kennedy? Like your video has gone totally viral there on TikTok. How many views has that got now?
6: Um, I think it's like six million or something. And
1: <laughs> wow! It's
6: because it's crazy because I've received so many comments on it of people sharing similar experiences, and I had no idea this was so common. It makes me <laughs> really nervous. I'm like, we're being watched everywhere.
1: Yeah yeah and you know what like it sure it's a it's this is creepy like people have called this creepy and it's disturbing and and certainly is but it's totally illegal too i mean this is like a complete violation this is against the law in our country under the criminal code i mean how do you how do you and your friends feel about this now
6: again just super violated like what in the bathroom, that's like the most private place ever. That's the last place I would want a camera to be watching me in a bathroom. So we're yeah. just completely in shock, just scared now. I have not, I don't want to go to any more Airbnbs or hotels even. Like, it's really scary. And I'm, I'm really nervous about where that footage is or what someone could possibly be doing with it. And again, like I was saying, other like families who had stayed there before, I just feel for them as
4: well.
1: Yeah, I don't blame you one bit. Do you have any advice for people like who are staying in Airbnbs? Would you Would you advise them? Maybe you should take a look around.
6: Yeah, take a look. I think there are some like hidden camera devices you can buy to search the house, which is such an unfortunate thing that we have to start doing. But, I mean, trust your instincts as well. My friend was totally on point with it. Um, so we're so glad she was there to find them because who knows how long they would have stayed there if we hadn't found them.
1: Yeah, and have the police given you any indication if they've been able to recover any any footage?
6: That's exactly what we're waiting to hear back on. Um, and yeah. if they can actually find the footage of us, then we're going to be seeking legal action because, yeah,
1: we don't yeah. want that. Yeah, I don't blame you one bit. Kennedy, thank you for coming on to share this story today. And I, I think you've helped a lot of other people out, put this on the map and... Boy, this story's gone around the world now, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: All right, let's keep discussing hidden cameras and Airbnb units now with my guest, Sarah Lehman, criminal lawyer, founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thanks a lot for coming on today.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Yeah, you bet. And this is a obviously very disturbing story of a, a large group of young women in an Airbnb suite and a hidden camera in the bathroom. It is an appalling situation. What went through your mind when you heard about this?
2: Do you know what? It is very appalling. But at the same time, what went through my mind is that this isn't the first time I've heard of this happening, unfortunately. And I can think back to a handful of different times that I've even seen just in the media I've not only Airbnb hosts doing this, but also other people like restaurant donors, for example.
1: Yeah, sadly, this is maybe more common than people think. I mean, you'd hope that this is a very rare and exceptional thing. But like you said, we're hearing about this more often, right? Should people be this is, is how disturbing is that to you?
2: Well, it's very disturbing because we have no. a reasonable expectation of privacy, even when we're in some public spaces, but in private areas of those spaces. That includes restaurants as well as Airbnbs, hotels and so on and so forth. But we're seeing more and more examples of bad actors who are going in there and putting um, hidden cameras in, not for the purposes of you know legitimately protecting their own property um, or providing security but for more nefarious purposes.
1: Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about Airbnb policy on this here now. So I'm looking at the Airbnb website right now uh, on their policy on this, and it says that intentionally concealing recording devices, such as hidden cameras, are never permitted. So this is never permitted in any Airbnb suite. And putting, so if there's a camera You're allowed to have a camera in the suite, it appears, but as long as it's not hidden, correct?
2: Yes, my understanding of this policy is that property owners or hosts can have cameras, but they need to be disclosed to guests. And the reason for that compromise is, of course, to, again, protect their property, um, ensure that there's no damage, or if there is, and at least they have some type of evidence with respect to it, um, security reasons. So there are legitimate reasons to have cameras, but what the Airbnb policy is trying to do is limit those cameras to those legitimate reasons and make sure that guests are informed about them.
1: Right, so they must be disclosed, and also Airbnb, it says here, they also prohibit security cameras that are in private spaces, including bathrooms, bedrooms, and other sleeping areas. So, I mean, that just appears to be kind of stating the obvious, that you that you should not have put these cameras in there, obviously. Do you think this is an adequate policy that Airbnb has here?
2: Well, I mean, I think that the difficulty is that when guests have found cameras that go against the policies, dealing with Airbnb can be a whole um, difficulty on its own. As anybody is aware, you know, dealing with these large corporations can be very frustrating. And when you lodge a complaint, sometimes that complaint isn't responded to in a timely manner or is not escalated properly. They have a huge volume of issues that they're dealing with. And so I think that a lot of the frustration comes from the actual process of trying to rectify a situation when a guest finds it.
1: Speaking to lawyer Sarah Lehman about hidden cameras in Airbnb units. Okay, Sarah, this is obviously it's not only appalling, disgusting, disturbing, creepy, whatever you want to describe it. It's also illegal. Let's let's be straight up here. Under the criminal code, section 162, voyeurism, right? This is illegal to do this, correct?
2: Yes, that is correct. That is the appropriate section that people end up normally being charged under for these types of offenses. And it can carry pretty significant penalties, including jail time.
1: Yeah, so I'm taking a look at 162. So it's any, uh, anyone who observes, including by mechanical or electronic means, and makes a visual recording in a circumstance that gives rise to a reasonable expectation of privacy. So you touched on that point earlier. You know, people have a reasonable expectation of privacy, even if they're, like you said, in a restaurant, in a hotel suite, in an Airbnb unit, right? What does that mean, a reasonable expectation of privacy?
2: So, I mean, really, the test is reasonableness. And we want to expect that to be common and accessible, but sometimes it isn't. Um, Really, the test is, would you expect to have a private moment um, in the place that you are in, and in the circumstances that you find yourself in. So for example, using a public restroom. Yes, you know, it's not completely private, but there is a reasonable expectation of privacy, at least in the stall, as well as in the washroom itself. um, But for say, other guests, if it's a shared washroom, for example. Um, And then the same thing goes in hotels, you know, in uh, sleeping areas, in washrooms. Um, These are places where we don't expect people to be watching us without our consent. And so that's very important to keep in mind.
1: Right, and just taking a look at this uh, section of the criminal code here, section 162, like you said, there are significant penalties here if per- anyone's convicted under this section of the code. So it's an indictable offense. Uh, it can have uh, imprisonment for up to five years. So you get five years in jail for this. Is Are these difficult cases to prove? I mean, do people do people go to jail for this stuff? They should, I think.
2: I mean, they can. It is a hybrid offense, so the Crown does have the ability to charge this summarily as well, which would lessen the penalties, generally speaking. But um, there are a whole host of different outcomes that can come with this type of allegation if a person is indeed convicted of it. And like you said, jail time is most definitely on
1: the table. Sarah, thank you for coming on with your expertise on it today. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much for having me.